Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Warning! If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode number 804 of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to our Patreon supporters and the new subscribers to our website membership platform. If you enjoy the show and you want to help us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon or at thewickedlibrary.com. Not only do all of our supporters get completely ad-free shows, they also get the highest quality version of the show at 320 kilobits per second, access to our archives with the first five seasons, official bookmarks, and depending upon the level of support, you'll get to hear our bonus stories before the free listeners. And at the $10 a month and above level, you'll get to hear our new show available only to our supporters, The Private Collector. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash subscribe to become a friend of the Wicked Library and a friend of the Librarian. We're working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for Season 9 and beyond, and we need your help to do that. Also, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Not only do your ratings help others find the show, but we also love hearing how and why you listen to the wicked tales we share. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and supporting the show and our contributors. And a reminder, if you enjoy the stories you hear, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It helps them keep making more. You can find links to them and their work at thewickedlibrary.com. A special thank you goes out to Mike Delgadio of boothjunkie.com, for the loan of the wonderful Shure SM7B you're hearing me talk on today. Mike is a voice artist who can be heard on our show, The Lift, and, of course, the amazing No Sleep podcast, and many others. Booth Junkie is a Season 8 partner, and Mike is a friend and all-around great guy. You can check out his YouTube channel at boothjunkie.com. And we did have a little flub on our last show. We had a live read for HelloFresh, who was one of the sponsors for the last episode. And we said it was 30% off your first week, 
It's actually $30 off your first week. And I can tell you from personal experience that HelloFresh is a great product, something you'll really enjoy. And I hope you all check it out and use our promo code WICKEDLIBRARY30. Now, let's get ready to get wicked here. Today's episode features two fantastic tales by our good friend Aaron Vleck. First, we have an encore of The Case of the Black Lodge, featuring David Alt and Erica Sanderson. And then we have an all-new tale told by Nicole Goodnight, The Summer of the Amazing Mr. Fig, of course, followed by an interview with the author. So don't forget to stay tuned for that. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's first story, The Case of the Black Lodge. and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> The Case of the Black Lodge by Aaron Vleck A group of us had sequestered regularly at the country home of one of the most notable and accomplished men of this age, the great traveller, scholar, author, and detective of all things arcane and terrifying to the faint of heart, Geoffrey Sykes Vermillion. On the last Friday of each month, we gathered at the crumbling estate on Heath Lane, just an hour's drive outside the city, where we would dine on the superior comestibles of Vermilion's table, and then retire to the study to be warmed by the most excellent brandy I have ever consumed, and chilled by the most singular and curious tales. The ritual endured without variation for some years, and had become quite the routine, Our number never wavered, and the seven of us plus our good host had grown well accustomed to one another. We suffered the presence of no outsiders or diminution of our party unless by the most urgent of pressing matters, and guarded rather jealously the parameters and locale of our association. Suffice it to say that on that blustery late October evening when we retired to Vermilion's darkened study after an excellent rib roast and fresh asparagus, only to find another already seated there in the shadows, we were taken aback and damn well not pleased. Decorum required we abstain from protest and silently awaited our host's explanation. We took to our regular perches, snifters in hand, and said explanation was soon forthcoming. At ease, gentlemen. Our visitor, Vermilion said, gesturing broadly toward the figure seated serenely by the fire, is Miss Allegra Barlow. As I relate the harrowing details of her story, I am sure you will glean why I have asked her to join us here this evening. He paused for a moment as our eyes adjusted to what meagre light the blazing fire on the hearth and a few candles provided, and we had a chance to discreetly examine Miss Barlow. 
She was a stunningly handsome and imposing figure, tall and willow-fine as she sat, with cropped and bobbed copper-coloured hair and the raiment of both the smart flapper and the lady of no small material means. I detected a mountain of luxurious furs tossed casually over the other end of the lounge on which she sat. Despite her great beauty and poise as she sat before us, I felt an inexplicable caution as we discerned this was no flippant girl or woman of the ordinary sort, but rather a creature of profound dignity and personal bearing. I'm sure we all assumed she must be among the foreign royalty currently holidaying in town, or an important personage of vast worldly accomplishment. All of this, and none of it, as it happens, was true. But hear of it in Vermilion's own words. I am acquainted with Miss Barlow through certain channels of my own, and we have shared our thoughts on many subjects of keen interest to us both on frequent occasions over the years of our association. When an urgent note arrived asking me to join her at her residence last week, I went at once, certain that no frivolous social call would be solicited by such a person, especially in the middle of the night. Vermilion paused to refill our glasses, nodding at the lady and noting her refusal with a swift movement of her hand. Though her face remained partly obscured, I sensed with every fibre of my being that we were being scrutinised in minute detail by eyes that were neither impressed nor charmed by our manly prowess and virtues, nor by the costly and fashionable cut of our suits and waistcoats. It was only Vermilion's relaxed and pleasant demeanour toward the woman that encouraged my own hackles to flatten against my back, and my body to relax into my seat. No odious creature or bane enemy would be invited into this house, nor would any possibly gain egress against the resolute will of its formidable resident. When I arrived at Miss Barlow's home, he continued, it was well past midnight, but she was still in full evening dress, and the large formal reception room was rudely ransacked. But it was the other curious details that commanded our attentions. The body on the doorstep, bloodied, broken, and stripped of its clothing, settled my mind on the nature of the late-night call to arms. Before I proceed, certain aspects of Miss Barlow's curriculum vitae must be revealed if you are to understand the extent of our association and the gravity of her predicament. Allegra, Miss Barlow, is the lodge mistress of Anubis Lodge, the Grand Lodge of the Order of... Well, I will leave certain details to Miss Barlow's privacy, perhaps later if time permits. His words trailed off as he watched my companions and I shift uneasily in our seats. Miss Barlow's home, located in a guarded location, is one of the largest private dwellings in town and serves as her home and as the temple for the Anubis Lodge. She has renovated the mansion at great personal expense and with formidable resources, and the results are a stunning tableau that any high-born Nubian priest of antiquity would bristle with pride to preside over. But on the night in question, Miss Barlow had just returned from an evening in the country. What she discovered was her front door shattered, the place a shambles, and her servants viciously murdered. You are probably wondering why she called me instead of more orthodox criminal authorities. Our association, of course, notwithstanding, it was the severity of the crime and the identity of the suspects that caused my name to spring most naturally to mind. 
You see, the initiates of Anubis Lodge have been engaged with something of a war with the Black Lodge for some time, and things, you might say, had finally come to a head. Despite my years of experience and familiarity with death, both murder most foul and mundane, as well as that steeped in the timbre of the macabre and worlds unseen, what unfolded in the wee hours of the morning within the walls of Anubis Lodge was chilling and most foul indeed. Now attend to what I am about to say, for it will undoubtedly be among the most shocking revelations of all that I will have shared with you regarding the occult side of my dealings, which, up to now, you may have assumed I merely dabbled in. Not so. The other reason my dear friend Allegra called me onto the case is because of my expertise in certain rites and practices found among the highest and most obscured valleys of Tibet. I refer to Bern, the precursor to the coming of Buddhism in Tibet, and the teachings of its sorcerous lamas. Now be still, I see you lot bristling in your seats, not all that's dark is evil, and subtlety is what makes this world of ours an interesting and tolerable place. I had spent some years in Tibet and had become familiar with its hidden mysteries, but more on this later. The denizens of the Black Lodge do not partake of the paths and practices of Bern, but my adepthood in these matters had proven quite useful on other occasions, outside the usual occult mummery most spiritualists get up to these days. Nothing on the tragic scene at Anubis Lodge had been tampered with in any way before my arrival. Allegra and I made cursory and then more in-depth investigations into all that we discovered. Then I learned more of the aforementioned war with the Black Initiates. The first body, that of poor old William, found naked on the very threshold of the front door, was arranged in a most provocative display with arms and legs twisted bizarrely in a manner unlikely to be happenstance. It was Allegra who pointed out the similarity of the misshapen body to a certain noxious sigil used by the elders of the Black Lodge to gain entry to places from which they are otherwise strictly barred. You might well ask, how was such a powerful edifice of the arcane arts as the Lodge of Anubis so easily breached when, I can assure you, the lady seated with us this evening is fully capable of guarding her fortresses? How, indeed. As the story unfolded, the Black Lodge had infiltrated the Anubis stronghold in seeming good faith when various of their members had staged a defection from their ranks and sought asylum and spiritual sanctum with Allegra and her initiates. Five members of the Black Lodge had left their former order and had taken initiation into the way of Anubis. Over time, they learned enough of her secrets to mount an attack. Seduction is a powerful and dangerous thing. The original five interlopers had managed to turn five more Anubians to their own schemes and greater secrets sprang open at their touch. Allegra had learned of this treachery and through various means had determined the scope and nature of the plot and the identity of the infected, among which was her own young cousin. Indeed, the purpose for the sojourn in the countryside that very night had been to deploy certain measures with the help of a sister lodge and to gather the troops to clean house at Anubis Lodge and rid the place of the spectral infestation. After carefully examining William's body and confirming the dread sigil arranged upon his poor broken limbs, 
The mistress of the lodge escorted me to the temple room where the remaining victims were found in most distasteful disarray. Like William, the butler's body was mangled, but he was stretched out in a horrid, elongated manner and twisted about to form the image of a snake devouring its tail. I shall leave further details to your imaginations, but the obscene spectacle did not in the least resemble Ouroboros. Again, the sigil was familiar to the lady and myself as that depicting an act of vile desecration of the human form, and the mark sacred to a certain denizen of the black pathways that I shall not name here aloud. Further lurid discoveries took the form of the cook, the chambermaid, a chore lad, and the night attendant of the sacred temple itself, the inner sanctum that none but initiates may enter. Together and conjoined, the bodies of these six poor wretches, these six sigils, formed the great black wheel sacred to the enemy lodge and created an opening, a birthing way, by which all that is good and noble within the Anubian path may be sucked away and perverted into nefarious energies, and all that is unholy, vile, and unclean may enter into the world to cavort and frolic about at will. A soft thud rocked me from my rapt absorption with Vermilion's voice, and I noticed my snifter had dropped from my hand and rolled across the carpet. I quickly retrieved it, only to realize my companions still sat mesmerized and oblivious of my clumsy blunder. For his part, our host shot me a reassuring glance and continued with his story. Allegra and I concluded our thorough investigation of the horrid intrusion and the sad bodies of her servants. Then we rang the so-called proper authorities and ushered them into the house to do their worst. Against all normal procedure and propriety, however, we spirited the final affront from the premises before the authorities arrived and secured it at a far remove from the house. It had lain upon the floor of the inner temple itself and formed the very substance of profanity. The thing reeked of the charnel house and the public toilets all at once, and we had to wrap our faces before we saw to its... needs. The abomination must have been alive after some manner of speaking, but it had not, hopefully, ever been human. The thing was circular and flat as a large black pancake formed of a tar-like substance and other indiscernible matter and measured about eight feet in diameter. As hideous as it sounds, for the life of me the thing resembled nothing so much as an infernal black placenta and I have no doubt that it served some such or similar purpose in the night's proceedings. Needless to say, when we disposed of the thing it was thoroughly and utterly dead we saw to that. Then it was burned and buried. This brought me sharply around, and I gasped and heard my companions groaning and shaking their heads. What was Vermilion about? Why was he telling us all this, when, before, his tales, as uncommon and unbelievable by many and steeped in occult lore and shenanigans as they were, remained the stuff of damn good yarns that didn't cause the hackles and bile to rise among the company. We had no recourse but to hear the story to its conclusion, so we settled back and tossed off another round of drinks in hopes of good, wholesome fortification arising thereby. The next day, after the authorities had removed all sad human remains, the mistress of the lodge gathered her flock and we set to work. 
I had returned home briefly to gather the implements and artifacts peculiar to my trade, and certain ritual garments appropriate to such adventures, and then returned to the Anubis Lodge, where things were progressing apace. Now, lest you erroneously assume that the good mages of Anubis Lodge and their mistress are not capable of mounting the necessary return of martial volleys without calling in outside assistance such as myself, note these two fine points. Firstly, the lady and I have quite a history together, and she has often called me in not as saviour, but as colleague and partner. Secondly, one must understand that the various forms of magic, occult studies, arcane spiritualities, and the like, form together the spokes of a great wheel of their own, and while they have overlapping qualities and areas of inquiry, each brings its own unique potency to bear upon any matter. You may recall the tale of the elephant and the five blind men. Each grasps a part of the beast and believes it to be the whole. The man in front grabs the trunk and believes the elephant is a snake. Another bloke embraces a leg and swears the creature is a tree. Another takes the animal's body for a wall, and so on. When we assembled in the temple room to mount our counter-assault upon the Black Lodge, the Anubians were regaled in their glorious robes of office and degree, their sacred weapons and sigils of honor emblazoned proudly. Among those desolate icy peaks and obscured mountain valleys... When we began, Allegra took her place at the center of the congregation and performed four banishings, each more potent and arcane than its predecessor. Certain incenses were set alight and the heady smoke soon filled the room. Then we fell into the deep and ordered reverie that forms the basic working rite of the lodge. I sat outside the circle of the Anubians, and together Allegra and I intoned certain formulas we had composed for the purpose— and that must needs be never uttered again thereafter. We had not long to wait, as the enemy lodge must have been decamped nearby in the seldom-travelled corners of adjacent space to await the throwing of the gauntlet to the floor. Within moments, the clean, fragrant smoke of the temple incense was dispelled by oily, noxious fumes that reeked of burning rubber and animal dung. Following Allegra's lead, we covered our faces with the sashes from our robes and steeled our resolve. The initiates closed the gap between them and locked arms where they sat as Allegra commanded the center of the temple. I was the first to see them, came an unfamiliar but clear and beautiful voice. I looked up to see our guest standing next to Vermilion where he sat. He had grown silent and the lady of Anubis Lodge now commanded our attention, and we uttered not a sigh of resistance, but rather sat like terrified and besotted schoolboys before the magnificent woman who seemed to completely fill the room with her radiant, peaceful presence. They clung to the floorboards and grew in size and number until they formed a swollen, unbroken chain around the perimeter of the circular room. Throbbing lumps of pale translucence they trembled with an inner glow that almost made them appear beautiful, had we not known their thoroughly evil origins. They were the larvae, and we shuddered at their sight, but maintained our vigilance. Some of the younger among my company gaped, but remained in their places, having never seen such corporeal manifestation of the uncreated before. 
The larvae were but the footmen of our enemy, and I silently urged my companions to ignore them. Soon they dissolved and drifted away like mist that clings to gravestones at moontide. As I rose to begin my turns, a sickly green film seemed to fall across the room, and I knew my enemy was at hand. It was difficult to walk, as though I dreamed or walked against a heavy current that I continued on. I started walking the perimeter of the room, weaving in and out amongst my companions, and resuming my course along the wall. It was in this way that the enemy engaged with me. Our two paths are so similar in many ways, yet so very unlike in others, but we are familiar to one another. It was something like a dance that this invisible spectre led me through, as we each took the measure of the other in the way hesitant lovers mirror the beloved. With my right index finger pointed towards the floor like a dagger, and my left hand fanning through the air, I gathered and repelled the energies that filled the room, and I knew my enemy did the same. I had never met the spectre in the flesh, but I knew that he was a man, the master of the Black Lodge, and that he had his minions, allies, and servitors, as did I. What he brought to bear upon me was hideous in the extreme, yet I held him at bay and sensed that he was surprised by this. He thought that since he had raided the hen house and robbed me of the worst among my flock, that I was sufficiently weakened for him to take me. He pressed down hard upon me, and once, twice, three times he almost brought me to my knees. I heard one of my companions crying, and I shot him a stern glance that bolstered his nerves and silenced him. When I felt that my enemy had grown arrogant and confident, I glanced at my old friend, and the greatest adept Lama of the Bon Path of Sorcery outside of Tibet rose slowly in his black robes and joined me at my side. The deep, throaty chanting rose in Vermilion's chest. It became a cacophony that drowned out the muttering and other noises that now filled the chamber. Then Vermilion left my side, and I heard the sound of something heavy dropping to the floor. My flesh tingled with terror and delight, and I longed to join him. The soft padding of feet plodded quickly widdershins opposite to the dance I resumed about the chamber. I dared not glance at Vermilion as he made his way around the room, and silently forbade my companions from doing so either. But I knew. I had seen on two other occasions the great black tiger that guarded my friend's soul, and which came to full material manifestation within his flesh when called. As my companions and I enacted a rite of western magic to defeat this oh-so-western enemy, my good friend Vermilion enacted the black meal rite of the Bon cults, knowing the tiger spirit would be a thing unknown, unrecognized by the enemy and his acolytes, and my own fallen companions who had joined him. The sounds of snuffling, growling, and the ripping apart of something by great claws was accompanied by screams and the fearful wailing of my initiates. I continued my dance, stabbing at the earth with one hand, grasping all I could from the airs and ethers around me with the other. As I walked, I noticed a sticky substance had begun to gather on the floor, and the scents that rose were both sickly sweet and suffocating. I renewed my invocations, and heard my companions growing bolder and joining in. First one, and then another stood and joined in the circle I navigated around the room, 
oblivious of the giant black tiger that sped past them in the opposite direction. All of a sudden, there was a breathless pause, as if an unseen hand swept back a heavy curtain and let in breezes from places long forgotten by our frail human sensibilities. A screaming torrent sounded as a black waterfall of pure, unmanifest chaos, the mother of all impossible evils, poured into the room and then halted in perfect silence as a crushing weight threatened to bear us all to the ground. The moment had come, and only all of our efforts together could push back that dark tide. I heard a ferocious snarl and a roar that almost ruptured my eardrums. I collapsed on the ground as the form of a great black tiger leapt over me and into the waterfall. Then both disappeared, and all was silent, empty, as though we had yet even to begin the evening's activities. Somewhere outside I heard sirens, many, many sirens, and voices shouting. I got up and ran to the window and threw back the heavy velvet drapes. In the distance, I saw a fire burning against the horizon of the night sky, as though half the city were being consumed by the gaping mouth of hell itself. I looked back at my companions and all was still, as though we had spent the night in peaceful meditation. Vermilion stood in the centre of the room, a man once more, his robes in disarray and torn in many places. He stood where I had stood, as though he had never left my side. I resumed my place beside him and bid my companions rise. I put my right finger to my lips and cast it sharply away. So it is done, I said firmly, and was answered by the entire company in like kind. Then we closed the temple and departed. The next day we learned that the fire had been started in the long abandoned tunnels under the old part of the city and had consumed almost a mile of the ancient timber-lined subterranean passageway. We heard reports of dozens of burned bodies found down there, as well as the remains of a large quantity of mysterious flotsam and jetsam of occult antiquity. The Black Lodge had found a fitting home and final resting place in that blackened charnel pit. The woman finished talking, and then she went to the sideboard and poured herself a snifter quite full of Vermilion's best, and returned to her seat among the shadows. And so you see, my friends, it is done, Vermilion said at last. <laughs> we just sat there, dumbfounded. Surely none of it could be true. But knowing Vermilion, who could tell? If it was true, what the damned hell were we supposed to make of it all? It is done, Vermilion bellowed again, raising his glass to us and to the lady mistress of Anubis Lodge who smartly returned his salute. We are done here with this little gentleman's club, I think, of boyish feasting and storytelling, he added, refilling his glass and tossing it sharply back and gesturing for us to do the same, which we did. The others looked at me and I at them as we awaited further instructions, or to be thrown out into the night or laughed at for our gullibility. So it is done, Vermilion continued taking his seat. We are no longer eight, we are nine, if the lady will have us. We will undertake a new line of inquiry and begin a deeper exploration of these matters you good fellows claim to be so interested in. But be of good cheer, 
From what I understand, nine is a very auspicious number. Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come! <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on? <laughs> The Summer of the Amazing Mr. Fig by Aaron Vleck I was exactly 11 years, 2 months, and 13 days old when I first met Mr. Fig. My name is Clara. My sister Cora, a mere child of 9 years, was very much different in constitution and outlook and things like that. We had been coming to this house by the sea with our parents ever summer since, well... They had been coming here since long before we were born. The house had belonged to some old uncle of father's who was long dead. He had left it to our family and some papers that Mr. James brought for father to sign one cold winter's afternoon when Cora and I, we were just five. I remember it very well, but Cora does not. She can be that way sometimes. Anyways, this story is about Mr. Fick. All the houses along the water were very large and primarily the summer havens for people we mostly knew in town. Mr. Fig and his sister, I think she was his sister, although now that I look back on it, I rather imagine she was not his sister at all or in any real way related to him. At least not like Cora and me. Mr. Fig and the lady, Miss Jane, lived in a huge old crumbling stone mansion on the hill overlooking the rest of our friendly houses and little bungalows like a stern nurse or school teacher, hoping the rest of us would just once get out of line. That was how my sister and I talked about the dark looming fortress, so unlike the rest of our bright and cheery summer getaways. These two lived in the house year-round, so their routines and daily outings were very much unlike our own. Each morning after breakfast, we children of all the residences up and down the shore would stake out our jealously guarded territories on the beach and begin the daily activities normal to people of our age. The grown-ups would lounge about, go into town to the little shops, then stroll by the waters and take quick dips before returning their afternoon rituals of cards and cocktails, things from which we were strictly excluded. The rituals and activities of Mr. Fig and Miss Jane were quite different. Now that I think of it, I'm not sure how we knew their names were Mr. Fig and Miss Jane, other than perhaps we heard the grown-ups talking in their hushed whispers about the pair. We certainly were never introduced, nor did they ever visit any of our homes for the grand parties that went on nightly, and to which all were warmly invited. These several irregularities of course caused the mysterious pair to become at first an object of curiosity, once I grew to the age of curiosity and then fascination and downright obsession when I reached the mature age of 11. But it must be confirmed that this keen interest was mostly on my part, but of course Cora always wanted to hear all about it. It started like this. Each afternoon, long past the time when most people, grown-ups, and children had returned to the great houses along the water to bathe and dress for supper and the night's formal reveries, Miss Jane would wheel Mr. Fig, who was confined to a wheelchair from his place on the shore 
down to the water's edge where he would just stare out to sea. Miss Jane would leave him there until after dark and then presumably collect him and bring him back to the dark crumbling mansion on the hill for whatever nightly engagements they may pursue. Mr. Fig was a curious sort. I could not tell how old he was for he had apparently suffered some terrible accident that left him disfigured in his youth. I had gleaned this from more of the whisperings from my elders and so I took this to be the irrefutable truth. Whenever I saw him, he was wrapped with a blanket round his legs. He wore a heavy coat, dark glasses, and a big floppy hat pulled low over his face, and I wondered how he could see the sun and see it all. Mr. Fig made rather a sad figure, sitting there all by himself, with no one to talk to, and no grown-up stopping to share the news of the day if they happened to be taking a late afternoon stroll along the sunset shore. I have witnessed Miss Jane depositing Mr. Fig on the beach each day like this, well, forever, as long as I could remember. I wanted to know what happened to Mr. Fig. Had he been burned so that his skin was too delicate to endure the sun and wind of the sea? Surely he became overheated dressed so heavily. It became altogether too much for me to endure speculating upon these matters without gaining more tangible information. One day after we had all returned home and I was supposed to be at my bath while my parents and several other grown-ups sat downstairs laughing quite loudly and playing music on the phonograph, I left my sister to her games with our little brother and slipped unseen out of the house. I ran down to the water's edge and saw the lone sad figure of Mr. Fig sitting in his wheelchair. There was no one else around. I started walking slowly towards him along the waterline. As I passed him, he just sat there and paid me no mind. The second day, when I walked past him, I waved, but again he just sat there and could have been a mannequin for all I knew. The third day, I wandered quite close to the silent figure, hoping to get some sign from him. I was within just a few feet from him when a screaming figure flew over the sand yelling at me. It was Miss Jane, and she was waving her arms madly, a crazed look upon her face, telling me to get away, to go home immediately and leave them alone, or she would complain to my parents. You must understand, Miss Jane was quite a frightful figure. She was very tall and willow-thin, and even on the beach she wore a very severe black and all-covered-up costume, with dark hose and button-up shoes. But there was no mistaking the look of anger and menace on that face, so I ran straight for home and didn't once look back. I took my bath and put on my clean dress Nora, mother's lady, had laid out for me and made it down a table just in time for the first course. Cora glared at me in that accusing sort of way she has that seems to say, See, I am a good girl and who knows where you have been. Mother glanced at me and smiled her polite, distant smile that contained a distinct undercurrent of reproach known only to her children. Father didn't seem to notice and just went on talking about numbers to Mr. Bender, who owns the house next door, who, along with his wife and two sons, added to the large party we had to dinner each night. I could think of nothing, of course, except Miss Jane and Mr. Fig. It seemed so odd. Even as Miss Jane ran screaming to chase me away, Mr. Fig just sat there saying nothing and not moving, and I began to wonder if his infirmities were worse than was believed, and he was actually paralyzed. That thought made me even more sad, and I determined that I would make contact with this enigmatic Mr. Fig and be kind to him. 
Miss Jane did not frighten me too much. What could she do to me after all? And besides, I knew I could easily outrun her. For the next several days, I walked slowly by the dark figure in his wheelchair, not drawing any closer nor passing farther away. The week after that, I grew bolder. There had been no more Miss Jane sightings, and I thought she might be resting comfortably in the belief that I had been taught a lesson and driven off for good. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. So on the fourth day, a Thursday, of my second week of these vigils, I decided to slowly ease my way closer to Mr. Fig, as one might try to seduce a stray cat into accepting a scratch on the neck or a bowl of milk. The next day I drew even closer, and the day after that closer still. The following day I grew even bolder and walked close enough past him to reach out and touch him if I had dared. As I passed, I glanced back and saw his head move almost imperceptibly in my direction, and then returned his gaze to the sea. The next day it was the same, only that afternoon as I passed him I said, Hello, but kept moving. The next day my greeting was met with a turn of the head and a very slight smile across the broad mouth and a slow nod in my direction. I was making real headway, and this only emboldened me further, believing myself to somehow have gained Mr. Fick's approval and authorization to proceed with my encroachment upon his privacy. On the Wednesday of that next week, I stopped and stood right next to Mr. Fig, and together we stared for some time at the sea as the red-gold orb of the sun melted into the horizon. After two more afternoons of this, I felt a slight tap on my arm as I stood there next to Mr. Fig. He was offering me his gloved hand. I took his hand and he gripped mine firmly and gave it a quick shake, followed by a brisk nod of his head. I was elated. As soon as I could, without being perceived as rude, I ran back to my house, giddy with delight. By now my family was used to me sliding into my seat just moments before my absence would become alarming. I decided then to take things to the next level. One night after dinner, when the grown-ups had retired to the parlor for grown-up conversation and refreshments, I slipped out of the house and ran down to the beach. From the distance, I saw Mr. Fig still sitting quietly, watching the moon rise over the black waters. I was grateful that Miss Jane had not yet come to collect him. I took up a hiding place behind a nearby dune. I wanted to see if there might be any more to be learned from the end of Mr. Fig's daily ritual, and I was rewarded for all my patient persistence. Before long, Miss Jane came trudging through the sand in her laced-up shoes. She came up to Mr. Fig, and instead of turning his wheelchair around so she could get him back to their house, she did the most curious thing. She pulled off the blankets that wrapped his legs, tossed his hat and glasses into the sand, and helped him to stand up. Then she helped him out of his long, heavy coat, which she folded over her lap, and then she sat down in the wheelchair. I watched and marveled awe as Mr. Fig ran naked in the cold waters of the sea as they lapped and broke upon the sands. His skin seemed tanned or dark in a peculiar way, but I could not see him clearly. He slipped beneath the waters and just disappeared. I watched and waited, growing more frightened by the moment as he did not reappear and return to the beach. Miss Jane just sat there quietly, seeming unconcerned for her companion's disappearance. I waited as long as I could, then returned to the house before Mother discovered I was gone or Cora decided to challenge me. I couldn't say a word, of course, because I was strictly forbidden to be out at night or play near the water after dark. Besides, Miss Jane would call for help, 
Surely, if Mr. Fig was in any danger, so I went to bed but did not sleep, considering all that I had seen. The next morning, when I ran down to the beach, fearful I would find it empty of all but noisy children and their sandcastles, I was elated to see the dark figure in his wheelchair sitting once again at its post near the water's edge, blanket, coat, hat, and glasses obscuring all from sun and scrutiny. I wasted no time before I wandered past and waved and said hello, again greeted by the nod of a head and a wave of a black-gloved hand. That night I was again on duty, observing all there was to see from behind my dune. As the night before, Miss Jane arrived and soon Mr. Fig had bounded into the sea. Several more nights bore out like this, and on one cool late summer evening, the dark figure broke the surface of the sea, and a hand and arm reached up and waved. Not in Miss Jane, but in my direction. I almost cried out and ran down to the water's edge, but kept my place, worried that this intrusion might just be too much of an affront for the enigmatic and protective Miss Jane. After a few more nights of this vigil, I watched again one evening from my dune, but Miss Jane did not appear. After quite some time, I feared that something might have happened and Mr. Fig would have nobody to bring him back home. I waited a while longer, but still no Miss Jane, so I steeled myself to go down and see if I might help. I walked up to Mr. Fig and he held out his hand, motioning to the blanket on his lap. I'm not sure why, but without another thought, I reached out and did all that I had seen Miss Jane do. I dragged the blanket away from Mr. Fig's legs, took off his hat and glasses, and gasped. Mr. Fig looked very strange. But the broad smile and thin pale lips and the golden light that danced in his large round eyes completely disarmed me, and I smiled back. I helped Mr. Fig get to his feet, and he removed his gloves and pulled off his coat. He was very strange indeed. His skin was rather bumpy and of a very dark olive hue, more so than any Mediterranean person I had ever seen. What happened next I shall never forget. Mr. Fig took my hand in his peculiar rub fingers and then we ran together across the sand and into the waters and disappeared beneath the waves. We swam for what seemed like hours and to black depths where there were no more fish at all, but only the very strangest creatures I had ever seen. Mr. Fig never let go of my hand, and I only wondered that I could breathe easily for a moment or two, only praying that this was real and not some childish dream from too much strawberries and cream after dinner. You might think that I was afraid, but how could I be? Mr. Fig held my hand tightly, and I was filled with such feelings of friendship. I wondered if Miss Jane ever swam along with Mr. Fig like this, or what she would think of me doing it. After what seemed like days, but was altogether too short, we returned to the shallows and then broke the waves and crawled up onto the beach. Standing there glaring at us both was Miss Jane. Her arms were crossed over her chest and she had such a look of anger that I could not tell if it was aimed at me or at Mr. Fig or us both. She shot an angry pointed arm back over the beach towards my house and I scrambled like crazy over the sand to get away. When I reached the house, I entered the cook's door and made my way through the silent house, out of my dripping clothes and into my nightgown. Cora was fast asleep, so there were no bothersome questions to be answered. The next morning, I went down to breakfast, planning to eat my scones and tea quickly and then return to the beach to see what new adventures and information might be forthcoming today. When I left the breakfast room, I heard Father talking with someone in the front hall. 
I couldn't hear what they were saying, but it seemed a rather one-sided, animated conversation in hushed voices, with Father uttering a lot of, Yes, I see, of courses. I stepped up to the door to the parlor where there is a large mirror. I could make out the tall, dark figure of Miss Jane standing in the door, so I hid until she was gone. Father returned to the breakfast room for another cup of coffee, and as soon as I knew Miss Jane would be long gone, I raced down to the beach. Mr. Fig was not there, and he didn't come all day. Mr. Fig did not come the next day either, or the day after that. Nor did I ever see Mr. Fig or Miss Jane again. I overheard Father talking to Mr. Bender about how Miss Jane had visited him one morning, saying they were moving far away. She gave Father the key to their house and asked if he would give it to the real estate agent that was coming in a few days. Of course he had agreed, and that was that. All of that seems as vivid and fresh in my mind now that I am a full eighty and some extra years old as it did at the time. I never knew why Mr. Fig and Miss Jane left our seaside enclave so quickly, but I have a suspicion. When I was grown, I spent every summer scouring the seacoast town for any sign of them, asking if anyone knew of a strange man in a wheelchair and his tall, stern companion. There was never any word or news, of course, but I always wondered why, when Miss Jane had come running over the sand those times, waving her arms and yelling at me to get away, if she was in fact yelling at me or at Mr. Fig. There was no reason, though, for that, as no harm had ever come to me. In fact, while as a child I always loved to wade among the shallows, as I grew older, it became my greatest passion of all to swim alone out beyond those shallows into the cold, dark depths. To this very day, despite my advanced years, I swim daily in the sea, in the last few months, however, amidst the protestations and alarms of the doddering, mirthless Cora and the younger generation of my many progeny, I have developed a pronounced preference for the night swim, clothed only in my shivering nakedness. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this. Well, kiddies, now it's time for another quick tale. This one deals with a powerful hunger burning deep inside. A hunger so intense and so overpowering that when unstopped, it can transform a man into a beast. Let's find out what happens when Henry spends all his time in the basement, working on his inventions, and ignores the hunger deep inside. Henry? Are you down there? <coughs> Henry? Hunger. So hungry. Let me out. Oh no. Not again, Henry. Why don't you just let me sign us up for HelloFresh? You could be making dinner yourself every night, and not letting it come to this. You turn into this monster every time you're hungry. Uh, dinner hard. 
No time to cook. Must do science. Now, let me out. Henry, I've told you before, all the ingredients come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits, so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. It's not hard at all. And you won't even have to spend all night in the kitchen, because recipes only take around 30 minutes. Oh, too expensive. I spend money on science. That's just ridiculous, Henry. With HelloFresh, it's easy to cook delicious balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. And if you do want to splurge a little on one of our special nights, there's even a premium selection for a dinnertime upgrade, like lobster ravioli and shrimp with tomatoes and tarragon cream sauce. I don't always want to eat the same thing. Like new foods. Now, Henry, that's the best reason of all to order from HelloFresh. Not only do they have three meal plans to choose from, classic veggie and family, but they have a huge menu. So you'll get to taste and try new things. You can go right to HelloFresh.com slash menus anytime to see what's coming up. Too late. Hungry now. Let me out. You know I can't let you out when you're like this, Henry. But I have good news. I decided to sign us up already. Because they have a promotion where you get $30 off your first week if you use the promo code WICKEDLIBRARY30. Our first meal box came today. And I cooked dinner for us. Food? Food to eat? Yes, Henry. Here, I'll slip it under the door. It's pulled pork tacos with black bean salsa and cheddar cheese. You know I can't really cook, but this was so easy. It is good, isn't it? If you ask me, there's nothing more satisfying than cradling the tortilla in your hands and contemplating all the tasty toppings before leaning in for a big, juicy bite. Hey, that was really good. Can I come out now? Of course, Henry. Now that you're not hungry and angry anymore... If only our very hungry man had taken the time to visit HelloFresh at HelloFresh.com and entered our special promo code of WickedLibrary30, all one word, he would have gotten $30 off his first week of HelloFresh and avoided having to hide in the basement. <laughs> it's a good thing Gabriel did it for him, or who knows what might have happened. Even if your kitchen... And the thought of cooking has always been the stuff of nightmares for you. You can feel confident cooking HelloFresh with the simple recipes outlined on pictured step-by-step -step instruction cards. So easy, even a desiccated corpse living in a mystical haunted library can do it. <laughs> Ooh, tacos! Stop hiding from a future of easy, tasty, home-cooked meals delivered conveniently right to your door. Visit HelloFresh at HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code WICKEDLIBRARY30, 
or one word for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. That's HelloFresh.com promo code WickedLibrary30 for $30 off. All right, so today my guest is Aaron Vleck, and we just listened to your story, The Summer of the Amazing Mr. Fig. And it was a fun story. It was something, whenever I read it, I knew right away that it was going to be on the show. Um, And I think that everybody who writes, there's a lot that goes into writing. There's a lot that goes into bringing that story to life, and there's struggles along the way. So what, for you, made this a story that, that you wanted to tell? Was it something that you knew right away? was going to be a story that you were going to put your time into, or did it kind of seduce you into writing it? How did it work for you with this one? Well, with this one, it was, was kind of fun because I had, uh, on one hand, it is an homage directly to Lovecraft because Mr. Fig is a Batrachian, his fish sort of Innsmouth denizen kinds of guys. But yet I don't call him a Batrachian. I don't mention Lovecraft. So if you are familiar with the Lovecraft mythos, you'll know who I'm, what I'm talking about there. If you're not, mm-hmm. it can just be a strange, nebulous kind of character that you don't really know what he is, except when he goes into the water and you're swimming, it's clear he's not just, you know, your ordinary everyday cat. So uh, I really found that fun. And I also have, I have a real soft spot for the Batrachians. I have forever always liked them. I've done another story about uh, a Batrachian that's, that's very uh, definitely a Lovecraft story. But um, I liked the idea that the uh, Batrachian was a, a positive kind of figure in that he introduced the girl to something strange and wondrous that ended up transforming her life at the end of her life. So I liked just sort of tipping my hat and showing a more appealing side uh, the whole uh, Batrachian sea dweller kind of, kind of, kind of character. Yeah, it's definitely fun in that way, and it it works on that dual level, like you say, because if you are familiar with Lovecraft and kind of that universe and that strange world that he created, it it definitely you definitely know what you're getting into. But if you're not familiar with it, it still works, and there's still a lot to the story that you get from it, especially the transformation. And I think that there's a lot of when we write, there's a lot of ourselves that we put into the story. So, I mean, is that an homage to yourself as well and the, the transformations that you've been through in your life? It is, and it's also an homage to all, the transformation that hopefully is available to all of us. I Every piece I've ever written in my life or ever will write is about transformation. And yet at the same time, at the end of the transformation or going into the transformation, she is becoming something other than human. So there is that quality of through transformation, we become something unlike what we were before, something that will, we will be a different person forever. Just like a child, when, when a child goes through puberty, that's a door that opens and closes, and you're never the same again. You never go back to being a child. And I see all kinds of transformation as hopefully being that kind of door opening and closing. So the, the beyond human element that uh, goes on in the story when the girl becomes a Batrachian in the end, I, I like the idea that we are constantly reinventing our humanity by becoming something different 
than we were yesterday or something different than we were before we had a major cathartic kind of experience. So yes, very definitely a clear representation of the transformation motif. The story kind of gives you that sense of admitting that there's something larger out there in the universe than yourself and being a part of it. Definitely. So what was your biggest struggle with the story? Did you have anything that made you work harder to get to the point or something that you had to push for to get, or did it come very naturally? Well, I had the same struggle that I have with every story, and that is that there is a a central formula, a recipe, if you will, that's the fulcrum of the magic that's going on in that individual story. And it may be there's every, different kinds of magic in every story. So here you had the fulcrum of the magic of the girl transforming. So for me, it was what is that aha moment? What is that punchline? What is that that illustration in words that brings to life the magic of that? So for me, I can sit down and write the story, but I always have to stop and pause, whether it be a day, a week, a month, or however long it takes, till that bubble pops where I see, ah, that is how it happens. This is how it happens. And it's not just a matter of how it happens in terms of the magic, but the words that are going to be used to convey that. So that was a struggle I had there, and I just have to wait for it. I can't force that. And that's what shows to me that my work is very organic and visceral, is that I have to wait for that, and I have to be patient. Because if I force it, then it's not going to be, it's going to be magical. You know, we talk about transformation how did the story transform for you? How, how, how many drafts did it take? How did it change as you went along? You know, I could say roughly that the way I write, I would say probably each story has at least 10 drafts. And for me, a draft can be uh, just changing a few words. I like to think that my work is like a piece, a lump of wet clay thrown onto a wheel. As long as, as soon as I get that lump of all the clay on the wheel, then I can relax. And the rest of it is just fine-tuning and honing and spinning and wheeling it into proper shape. So, And that is what I call combing. It's meaning I'm going through and changing and rearranging and editing. And the last few drafts are really just word changes where what is the perfect word in every single sentence? And I'm not saying every single word is this, you know, wildly poetic lyrical word that would that would get cumbersome and ridiculous but like with lovecraft you see every word seems to be chosen very carefully like that perfect strawberry put on top of the cake so the final five or so combing through i'm going through and finding the perfect word the perfect word the perfect word and just switching out a word here word there word on that line so it's just really a fine tuning rather than a major overhaul just to, just to get it to that point. You're searching for like kind of the Goldilocks phrase. Right. And then and even just with words, like if I said something was red, some, you know, that's fine. But blush is a much better word than red because it says a lot more, you know, and that's those are the kind of words that I'm looking for. I've always been a big fan of, of phrases and words that have more than one meaning and can be taken different ways. And I think that that's a little bit of what you're saying there is that, the, you know, there's subtext to the story as well. And, and the, the word choice a lot of times on the surface, it means one thing, but if you read that story a second or a third or a fourth time, it, it begins to speak to you a little bit differently as an author and, and as also as a reader. Yeah, exactly. And it also, it also uh, forces and allows uh, an author 
to expand their vocabulary and use their, you know, to show their vocabulary chops. Because we need to always be adding new words and, you know, right. more evocative words for, you know, uh, if I'm talking about desert, and I am frequently talking about desert in various stories I've written, I need to find many more words than just sand-colored or yellow or beige or gray or, you know, I need to, there's a whole palette that needs to be developed for each instance that you're writing about. No, I agree with that entirely. I think that the only word that gets used again and again to the point where it disappears is said. Aside from that, if you're using the same phrase or the same descriptive word, it, it, it almost kind of grates after a while and it becomes very obvious. It does. Yeah. And I've been guilty of that in the past. So, um, we all have, I have, uh, sort of had an awakening to, to my ability, my, my ability to do that. So that's another reason why I go back through. And, uh, yeah, when I'm doing my rough draft, I might find the same lousy word in one sentence. I mean, I think, what am I saying here? You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you and I have had conversations offline before about kind of how characters speak to us. And I, I'm, I'm always fascinated about that. You know, we've worked on the lift before, which is the other show that, that I do. And, you know, for that, for that show, Victoria is a very visceral, well, I don't want to say visceral. She's a very, um, alive character for me. She's, and, and I think that that tends to be the case for the authors that write her as well. And you and I have talked about how sometimes the character starts to talk to you and starts to whisper to you and tell you their story. Was it that way for this as well? Did one of the characters start talking to you at first or was it, you know, kind of the story itself that you started to see? How did this one come to life? The characters always talk to me and tell me their story. And I was very, very lucky uh, some, not so long, some few years ago when I finally realized that that's what happened to me and for me in my best stories. So now I just wait. I wait, um, I might get some sort of a, a vague story, and then the character pops in, and then the, the character starts telling me their story. And it really is very much that, very much like that, because uh, most of the times, all times, I'm finding uh, big surprises when characters tell me that they want to do something, or they've done something, or they're going to do something that's different than I have laid out for them. And I have to admit, they're right. That what I had in what I had planned for this character is nowhere near as interesting and and fun as what they tell me they want to do, and I just I can't even explain that. You know, I mean, you could talk about automatic writing or dreams or hoo ha or however we want to approach that nebulous bubble that exists around our head when we're creating. Thank God it happens when um, for these for the characters that I'm proud, you know, to put out there for the world to read. If there's anything about writing that keeps me coming back to it, makes me want to continue to write. It's exactly that. It's the, the surprise when you have a plan in mind, or even in cases where I know the end of the story first and I, and I, how do I get there? I may have, I may think that things are going to happen in a certain way. I may want the character to do certain things, Victoria does that a lot for me where she's like, no, that's not how I would say that. I would say this, or right. this isn't how this happened. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. That, that to me is the best part is when the characters come to life and they start to do things that you're not expecting. And I can't explain it either, but it's the great joy for me of story and storytelling is whenever something happens that wasn't planned or expected, but is 100% correct. Yeah. 
Well, I think it gets back to what you're saying. You know, it's like it is it is a peeling back of the layers and showing us that regardless of what we think or believe or want to believe, there is a great deal belief to service than what we're normally seeing. And I think that those moments really are almost sacraments that show us, yes, there is something else here, you know, and this is where you're dipping your, your, you know, little uh, ladle into that world. And I think the more we dip, the more we have faith that it's there and dip into it, the more it becomes a bigger part of our reality. Yep. Absolutely. So for you, what is it that pulls you into writing and keeps you coming back to the well? Well, to me, it's like I say, it's my overarching formula that is that and then why I use horror. And even if my definition of horror is slightly different than some people's, the idea of transformation through shock, through horror, Uh through something that is destroying your perception of reality. And this is why I separate what I call low horror, which to me, is the jump shock, the blood and gore only, the uh, you know the knife wielding serial killer, all that stuff, which is fine. But once those events are over, even though you have you may have suffered a traumatic sort of thing, you still knew it was a person. It was just a guy. It was just a crazy guy that was after you. Mm-hmm. It was just you know a rabbit dog or whatever it was. But to me, high horror are those uh, are are artistic representations of that world tapping you on the shoulder, whether you're ready or not, whether you want it or not, saying, here I am, and you must confront me. And it's like jumping into an ice-cold swimming pool. No matter how much you believe in those worlds, no matter how much you understand those worlds and participate willfully and consciously in those worlds, every time you jump in, it is always a profound shock to the system because we live in this world and that's a different world. And there's a veil that separates it. And I think true horror to me is that intersection where the fear and the longing become indistinguishable and draw the person, whether it's the reader, the listener, or the person standing on the precipice of that world, draws them in that says, I don't care if I die. I want to know what that thing is. I want to taste that experience that's waiting for me there. That is 100% the only reason I write. And everything I write in some way, shape, or form illustrates another possible approach to that horizon. Nothing else. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. What routines do you have? We talked a lot about rituals and things, but do you have certain routines that work for you to get you in the right mindset to to write? I mean, I know in conversations we've had in the past that basically you just have to write. Uh, Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not. But are there things that you find work for you to get you in the right mindset to tackle a story? Yeah. What I find is putting on music that I feel best typifies the mood that I'm going for, the ambience of the world that I'm trying to drop into. And that will usually, then if I sit down and force myself to write, I can usually get a lot of stuff done unless I'm stuck on that formula that I was mentioning earlier. And I have found, oddly enough and weirdly enough, thankfully, quite often I will get up in the middle of the night for one reason or another. And when I come back, I'll lay down and I'll still be awake and everything will start flowing. It'll just be flowing out 
as though here's the answer to it. Here's the fulcrum. Here's the how that that recipe is going to work there, and it's just amazing. So I guess it's in, I've been in the sleep zone, and my mind is working in a different uh, level. So I, I'd say those are pretty those are pretty much it. I think that's great. I mean, one of the things that we hear a lot from listeners of the show is, you know, that they'd like to submit stories and we have a lot of folks that send stories in or, or want to learn how to write better. And that's really one of the things that we try to do with the interviews at the end of the show. So anything that works for you might work for somebody else. And, and you know, I know that what I've found is not everything that other people do works for me, but I tend to take little pieces from everybody and I kind of build my own rituals and processes and, and figure out what works. I mean, that's all what you have to do is this experimentation to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. So it's always great to hear what someone who knows the craft as well as you do does to, to kind of get in that, that rhythm and that mindset. Right. And the thing is though, that no one thing works for everyone. And these people that say, do this, do that, do that. Like it was some sort <laughs> of a, you know, uh, learning how to change the tire on a car. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you have to try a lot of things and none of them work. And the hundred first thing is really going to pop for you. So it's right. just, it is a matter of experimentation, you know? Yeah. So is there a, a book or a story that you've read that's changed the way that you look at the world and your place in it? Cause we're talking a lot about transformations and, and how we're influenced by things around us. Is there something that you can look back to and remember this was a turning point for me. This is what set me on this path or, or, or that sort of thing. Well, there was a there's a, a a fellow by the name of Tahir Shaw, who is the son of the old Sufi writer uh, Idris Shaw, and Tahir Shaw is a consummate storyteller, and he's written many many wonderful wonderful books. Most of them are about uh, his adventures and travels. But two books that are what the first one a sequel. The first one was in the Caliph's house, and the second one is in Arabian Nights. Uh, chronicle his journey of buying a fabulous, huge house in Morocco and restoring it. And the house was full of gin when he moved in, and gin, a gin keeper, and the wonderful and wacky and strange things that he went through to, to restore this house and discover his own journey as a storyteller. He was raised as a storyteller. His father was a storyteller. So it wasn't something new for him. But when he, in his 40s, uh, went on something of a walkabout through Morocco to discover storytellers and himself as a storyteller, to really say, I'm grown up now. I'm calling myself a storyteller. That was profound for me because it was one of those books, just reading it, sucks you into this strange, wonderful world. And it was like, yes, it was the time when you grow up and say to yourself, I am a storyteller, this is my job, and I say job like my job in the world, justification for the world. So I'd say that that was, for me, um, definitely a Sardic book, or two books, sequel. No, that's really cool. And and I, I love the fact that it's, you know, it's, it's outside of the genre, uh, because, you know, one of the things that we do here is we focus a lot on horror and speculative fiction. But one of the things that is always in the subtext there is that in order to write well in any genre, you can't just read and live in that genre. You have to go outside of that to find the things that fuel your story. 
Absolutely. And the thing is, though, to me, uh, even though my storytelling is confined to horror and speculative fiction, I'm a storyteller first who happens to write speculative fiction horror. And so to me, uh, the identity and the craft, the role, the consciousness, the mindset of the storyteller is tantamount to my identity. So in other words, I would probably have more to talk about to a storyteller who only told children's stories from Uganda than I would someone who just wrote Lovecraft, Me Too, copy, who didn't really identify themselves as a storyteller, as an identity, as a function in the world. So that's why, to me, um, I could draw from many, many different, I have to draw from many, many different kinds of places. No, I think that's really cool. So what does something have to do to scare you? What, what, what is your definition of horror personally? Because I think for all of us, it's, it's very different. There are certain things that we share and certain things that we're all afraid of. But horror, when it's at its best, I think it's, it's very personal. There's things that we identify with and we find in stories that nobody else is going to pick up on. Uh, do you remember you know, a movie or a story or an audio piece or anything that, that really spoke to you and, and scared you? Yeah, there's a, uh, for me, because, because I've written and because I'm the age I have and I've seen every horror movie and seen every, it really takes quite a bit for me to get what I call the whim-whams, meaning mm-hmm. I'm sitting here in my apartment, the lights are on and I've got the whim-whams, you know. And um, I, a lot of times, listen to uh, horror podcasts and storytelling podcasts at night before, I go, before I'm going to bed. And um, there is one podcast called Point Horror. Oh, yeah. Knife, knife Point Horror. Very good show. Very good show. And uh, Soren Narnia has a production value that's minimal, monochromatic voice that sounds almost like uh, Jack Webb from uh, the old cop show. You know, this very monochromatic, just the facts just telling things as they are. There's no music. And it is so minimal that it just puts you in this other Kafka-esque, black and white, strange, gray world. And he has one story, I don't even remember the name of it, that the first 75% of the story, he's just driving down a road through through a country with farms on either side. And it's just all farmland. And every now and then he can see a little house off in the distance somewhere. And it's just, even that is so creepy that I had to turn it off because he's taking you deeper into weird and farther and farther and farther away from the last house where there was a light on. That to me is it every time. It's like, I don't, I'm not even going to sit here and say, well, it has to have this, it has to have that. It has to captivate, captivate me into another world that is bizarre. And I don't even need to hear anything even actually happening. You can just keep driving me down that road that's so strange. I'm just totally creeped out. And that's what, I mean, to me, that's a master that can, that can create that, uh, that tableau that um, you just don't even, don't even care what's going on. It's just horrific. Yeah. I, I think that we don't want to sell you short because we have a little show that you and I are working on together. And everybody, if they haven't listened to it yet, they should go back and listen to it. But the last episode of the Wicked Library, which is our quarterly anthology episode 
uh, we decided to give a little teaser in, in the teaser in the form of the actual full piece of the new show that we put together uh, called The Private Collector, which uh, stars the librarian and um, this detective who is uh, involved with high strangeness. I don't want to give too much away, but people have heard it. So sure. let's talk a little bit about that because there's a lot more to come with that. And I've had the opportunity to read and narrate the second episode. And I know you're working on the third episode as we speak. Um, and you know, Nelson's involved in it too, because he's the voice of the librarian. So, uh, he said something that was really cool, which is, he's like, it's like the X files, except extra creepy and even darker. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, there's something really cool that we're, we're creating there. Um, and you know, for my part, it was basically, I looked at the librarian being involved in crossovers with the lift and kind of what he's been on, on the wicked library and people love the character. And I think that there's so much more to him that we haven't explored. And as a way to kind of help keep the show sustainable, I said, well, maybe what we could do is we could create the series that is going to be awesome enough that people want, want it so bad that they're willing to pay for the entertainment value. Uh, so, you know, through support on, on Patreon or through uh, eventually subscriptions to the Wicked Library directly. It's going to be something exclusive that only our, our supporters are going to get. We have some other ideas for things to do with it later, but um, I had come to you and said, well, you know, hey, you're the first person and really the only person that I want to write this. Would you be interested? And I was so excited that you said yes, because you have this deep knowledge of that whole realm that the librarian's a part of, and uh, you've started to build this really creepy, dark, interesting universe um, and, and a whole new side to the librarian that absolutely fits his character, but is something that I think when I read the first story, I was like, oh, wow, this is what he does. This makes total sense now. Cool. So I, so talk a little bit about that and kind of the, the process of putting that together and, and what you're most excited about. You can go wherever you want with it, ideas that you have, that sort of thing things that people that are fans of the show and, and of uh, the librarian are, are really going to enjoy about it. Well, it was an interesting thing because anytime that you're writing into someone else's universe, you have to, uh, first off, there must be an organic connection. You, there has to be some reason that this marrying of ideas and minds is going to work. I had already liked the librarian. I had uh, established a rapport with you, with uh, the show, and, and and all of that. So I felt like, oh wait, yes, 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 I can I can definitely do this. So when I started writing it, there I was with the librarian, and I am uh, listening to the librarian, and I had to uh, say, okay, I, everything I know about the librarian so far, um, I have from Dan and the show and everything. So. I had to open up, open my mind up to the librarian and see where would he go? What would he do? What would his um, personality be like uh, in a variety of different uh, kind of situations? So we had this, um, this detective that is uh, something of a, uh, a protege and something of a, uh, if you will, employee of the librarian gathering, uh, ostensibly gathering all of these uh, mysterious tomes and dangerous volumes that exist all around the world 
that may or may not be a good idea to have them in the general circulation so the librarian can get them either back into his library for safekeeping or get them for the first time into his library. So uh, one of the surprises I had when I was working on that first story was I thought that the backstory at the beginning about um, Frank um, Enfield and his partner uh, Doug Cartwright and their uh, their foray into the hoo-ha, the weird shit, the stuff on the other side of town run by the boys in the back room. I thought that that catastrophic event with the, the loss of, you know, the, the explosion and the, and the drenching uh, with ectoplasm and all this weird stuff, the star creature coming in, all this stuff, that brought a curtain down on uh, the detective and sent him into Bellevue and then he gets out going up to recuperate in this town, he thinks, but in fact, he's jumping out of the fire, frying pan into the fire. What I wasn't expecting was that his partner is anything but gone. His partner is in some strange limbo and that he comes back speaking in his mind or is it in his mind? So there's this sort of return, you know, there's this full circle, if you will. And so um, when I also realized that I wanted in subsequent episodes, I didn't want it to be just a run-on of the same uh, thing. I want the, the librarian and the detective to be expanding their their foray and exploration into into these different kinds of books and these different kinds of uh, dangerous scenarios. So the second episode is very, very different than the first one. And the third one is a radical departure, yet still the librarian, still the detective, but exploring yet another avenue. And I also wanted, I started out, the detective has very definitely been exposed to, uh, to the occult and uh, to these various things, because as you find out, um, you know, his partner had some, uh, was raised as a, as a voodoo man. Um, so you uh, see that he's not a, a complete novice babe in the woods. But he's no, nowhere near the cavalier kind of occult detective that you generally encounter you know, in the Constantine model where the guy just comes in smoking a cigarette and solves the problem. He is terrified in many of the situations, but with each situation that he encounters, he grows and gets his chops and, and learns to navigate these worlds uh, more comfortably. So he, his journey through the episodes will continue to evolve as he as he expands his horizons and as he learns more about the librarian because the librarian is by no means a fixed static sort of entity himself from the very get-go as you will see in the second and third episodes the detective is never completely 100 percent comfortable with the librarian the librarian is is a creature uh, from another, from the other world, from beyond the veil, that exists in this world as well. So he, as a as a man, you know, a flesh and blood man, the um, detective is always <clears throat> a bit on guard with the librarian, even though he be as he becomes more comfortable with the occult, he gets his original kind of cocky nature back that he's had before all this started. So he's finding himself in kind of a dichotomy. So that's fun to explore too, as as, as he matures on all these fronts. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point because 
I forget sometimes with with the librarian and with Victoria because I'm so immersed in them. Just like how terrifying they actually would be if you met them in real life. Like if you walked down the street or walked into a library and the librarian was there, how terrifying that would actually be. Um, and you, right. you've done a really good job of bringing that home because, you know, we start off with the librarian long, long, long ago being human and what he has become over, you know, because time is not linear for him, how many eons it's been. Uh, whenever he first or how many hundreds of years or what it could be whenever he actually first meets him, just how terrifying he actually is as a character. And, and I love that. Right. The high strangeness. There's one of the creepiest scenes I've ever read in my entire life in the second episode. And when we're done recording, I'll tell you what it is if I haven't already. But it's okay. it's 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 one of the most terrifyingly creepy things I've ever like. I got chills when I read it. Uh, so I'm really excited for that second episode and, and that particular scene and just the way that the series is going to continue on. Yeah, I, I'm finding it very exciting, too. And I think that my my approach to the librarian is touches also back to the, uh, the what I was describing about my own formula in that the librarian had at one time been a man, but he has traveled his his journey. Uh, through all of these aeons of uh, of exploration and transformation, all that has made him very un very unhuman, and I think that uh, that is what I was getting at. Even with the girl in the Mister Fig, I mean, any time you've you've gone so far outre of the ordinary human experience, you become terrifying. And yet, I also like that the, the librarian still has a sense of humor. <laughs> so he has not. He's not. Uh, there's a, there's a play, I feel there's a playful quality to the uh, librarian, even if that playfulness is at your expense. And I think that kind of, that's the beauty of it. See, that also gets into like trickster kind of thing, mm -hmm. you know, that life is always, no matter how horrible it is, life is always this wonderful joke that we take deadly seriously. So I'm having a lot of fun. I'm glad. And it shows. I can tell in the writing. So where can people find other stuff that you've done? You, you have a bunch of stories that uh, have been narrated, not just by the Wicked Library and by me and, and the folks that we work with, but other stuff that's out there on your website. You have a ton of writing. There's some great uh, gin stuff that you've done. Uh, talk a little bit about some of your other stuff that people who love today's story and love your work can, can go and connect with. Okay, yeah, there's... Um my own uh, website, where you, there's a lot of uh, narrated, narrated stories, uh, links to Wicked Library and Lift Stories, plus many, many other stories, um, is erinvleck.wordpress.com. Many stories to be found there. Uh, also, I have another uh, occult detective uh, series, which is uh, my Jeffrey Sykes' Vermillion series, which Vermillion is a very much his own man detective very cavalier, very uh, in the 19th century mode. And um, he's coming out by a story about Vermillion is coming out in the Occult Detective Quarterly in March. Uh, I was also in their premiere episode, uh, premiere issue with a story, a voodoo story about New Orleans uh, that was um, an original, was, was nominated for the uh, reading list of the Horror Writers Association Award. Didn't win, of course, but it was fun being nominated. Um, then there's also uh, Ghastly Tales, 
which is on uh, YouTube and also an iTunes uh, podcast, and Creeperoni, which is on YouTube. And I think those are probably the best uh, places to find where I'm hanging out these days with stories. And of course, as you say, the back catalog of Wicked Library and the list. Excellent. So folks know you have kind of a pedigree in this this stuff. You have some experience in, in New Orleans. Uh, you have some experience with researching the, the djinn and uh, the occult and magic. So there's a lot of this stuff that permeates your work and, and that is going to be really fun to explore uh, with uh, the private collector as well. Yeah, there's um, there is uh, there's, there's various things that I'm going to be exploring and bringing up in uh, subsequent episodes that the seasoned uh, professional occultist, if you will, <laughs> will uh, recognize immediately, and the um, reader or listener who is uh, just enjoying these things from afar will find it very intriguing. I think so. Good times for all. Absolutely. And there's there's another little project that we're working on together um, that I'm, I'm not 100% ready to talk about yet, but we're going to be editing something together um, that is going to expand on and explore one of the other projects uh, that we mentioned earlier in this conversation and a few times in this conversation, actually. So that'll be fun. Yeah. Other than that... Yeah, it's exciting that there's so much going on. Exactly. I was going to say, other than, than everything we've talked about, which is a lot, <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you're working on right now that you want folks to know about? Um, actually, to tell you the truth, I have become so excited about these projects <laughs> that I have narrowed down, other than my, uh, my Vermilion mm-hmm. uh, Occult Detective series, which I'm continuing to you know, develop in on the side as it is now, um, I think it's uh, my heart's with the with the, um, the collector these days. Very nice, very nice. So, where can folks reach out to you if if you have people that want to connect and interact with you? What's the best way to do that? I use Facebook. Awesome. I am I am very approachable and very you know I'm on Facebook a lot, so that's about the only um, social media thing I use. That's cool. I like it too. That's where, that's where you and I talk most of the time, and exactly, we, and we yeah. and we talk quite a bit. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a good tool. It's 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 been it's it's great working with you. I really enjoy it. It's uh, there's a lot coming in all the worlds that we're working on together. I think it's going to be a great year for uh, expansion for for both the lift and for the Wicked Library, and hopefully for the other projects that you're working on as well. Uh, there's there's a lot more to come, and uh, there's some some really cool things, and it's it's fun too because you know every time we work on these projects together, it it kind of spurs something new. So uh, there, there's definitely yeah. plenty to come, I think. Yeah, yeah, there is indeed. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. Uh, it, it was fun not only to uh, you know have a little chat that uh, everybody gets to eavesdrops on uh, eavesdrop on, but we we don't get to actually talk. Um, you know, vocally very often. We're usually in uh, Messenger and email and whatnot, so it was nice to catch up with you as well, and we'll we'll definitely have to do it again. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com 
If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library or directly on our website at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash subscribe. You can be a part of helping keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found at thewickedlibrary.com. You can find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Mr. Fig to find you. <laughs>